0: Everyone hates a meeting that should have been an email. Meetings for meeting's sake drive us all crazy, except for a few accountants. They seem to revel, even glory in meetings. This is our moment to shine. The universal animosity towards meetings is true in business. It's true in ministry. It's probably even true in your local HOA.
1: Good morning, my
0: neighbors! But there are certain meetings that are just a travesty. I'm about to play you a clip from a meeting that's about as helpful as a stick in the eye.
2: I'm very sorry, but the time has expired. Chair now recognizes the executive committee, credentials committee for a response.
0: That's an unpleasant taste of the bloated bureaucracy that dominates the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Convention. Every year, thousands of messengers gather for hour after hour of approving minutes, procedural talk, motions, committees, resolutions, and voting. But this past year, at the 2023 gathering in New Orleans, there were a few moments of fireworks.
2: For 178 years, the SBC has been a blend of at least a dozen different tribes of Baptists.
0: That's the voice of Rick Warren, well-known founder of Saddleback Church in Orange County, California. Author of the best-selling Purpose-Driven Life, Seeker-Sensitive Church Growth Guru.
2: If you think every Baptist thinks like you, you're mistaken.
0: For several decades... Warren Saddleback Church was a card carrying member of the Southern Baptist Convention. That all changed in 2021 when Warren and the Saddleback leadership announced that they had ordained three female pastors, a violation of the Southern Baptist faith and message. Updated in the year 2000, it says this about lady preachers While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. Warren is defending his church at the 2023 SBC convention, arguing that a different view of women's roles in the church shouldn't disqualify Saddleback from membership in the SBC.
2: What we share in common is a mutual commitment to the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's word and to the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. No one is asking any Southern Baptist to change their theology. I'm not asking you to agree with my church. I am asking you to act like a Southern Baptist who have historically agreed to disagree on dozens of doctrines in order to share a common mission.
0: Warren's case is a simple one. Southern Baptists agree on all the important stuff the authority of the Bible, the saving work of Jesus, and the mission of the church. He's arguing that they shouldn't divide over a secondary issue, like whether or not women can be pastors.
2: We should remove churches for all kinds of sexual sin, racial sin, financial sin, leadership sin, sins that harm the testimony of our convention. But the 1,928 churches with women on pastoral staff have not sinned. If doctrinal disagreements between Baptists are considered sin, we all get kicked out. You'll never get 100% of Baptists to agree 100% on 100% of doctrine.
0: I don't have any interest in debating whether or not Warren should still be in the SBC. I don't have a particular dog in that particular fight. That's not what this episode is about, and it's not why I'm bringing it up on this podcast. What I'm interested in is Warren's argument? How he ranks these certain doctrines as more important than another? Is he right when he claims the role of women in the church isn't that big of a deal? Is that an issue on which good and godly people can disagree? And what issues fall into that category? And which ones are not up for debate? What Rick Warren is really doing at the convention is ranking doctrines. He's saying that the issue of women pastors isn't as big a deal as, say, sexual sin. And what he's doing there is very important as he prioritizes doctrines. And it's something that every Christian needs to learn to do. But I wanna show you how to do it well, because I believe Rick Warren is doing it wrong. On this episode, the first of season three, John MacArthur's long and fruitful ministry is going to help us navigate doctrinal disagreements. He will show us how to defend all of God's truth, something John is well known for, and how to keep the main thing the main thing, never compromising the truth and being gracious towards those we disagree with. Through it all, we'll learn the important value of something called theological triage, We'll learn how to rank and prioritize doctrines in the Christian life. That's the theme of this episode. We'll define theological triage, learn how to practice it way better than the example of Rick Warren, and we'll see that the wisdom of it is crucial for an enduring ministry. Ministries will not last, and Christians will have a diminished witness if we fail to understand and employ theological triage properly. My name is Austin T. Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. And this is season three of the podcast from the center, the enduring, the timeless and fruitful ministry of John MacArthur. Before we return to the skirmish between Rick Warren and the SBC, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine who lives in Burundi, Africa, one of the poorest countries in the world. Nine of 10 people in Burundi rely on sustenance farming. 87% of the population lives below the World Bank's poverty measure of making less than $1 a day.
3: I'm Carlin Wendler. I grew up at Grace Community Church, listening to John MacArthur since before I was born. And I went to university at UC San Diego, studied molecular biology and history, and then went to medical school at the University of Michigan, where I met a group of people who were passionate about using medical education to advance the gospel in places that didn't have a lot of doctors or light.
0: Those friendships would eventually take Carlin to Burundi, where he leads the country's main hospital.
3: I serve as the department chair of emergency medicine here, but I'm also the chief medical officer of the hospital. This is a 350 bed hospital, and we are one of the regional referral centers. So we get patients from Tanzania and Congo and all of Burundi. The hospital is blessed to have uh, a bunch of Christian staff here. It's a Christian mission hospital associated with a Christian um, university that has a medical school.
0: Before moving to Central Africa, Carlin did his residency in a very different context, at the University of Southern California Medical Center, just down the road from Grace Community Church. The neighborhood this hospital served used to be the area's epicenter of gang violence. Gunshot victims arrived daily. Doctors and staff faced threats of violence. For Carlin, this was the most dangerous and best possible education in emergency medicine, and it's where he saw the necessity of triage.
3: Triage, actually a French word. It means to sort or to, to select. And so the the idea is in emergency medicine, the patients come to you and they may or may not all be as severely sick. So you need an order to, to treat them. In the order of the severity or the gravity of their illness so you don't want to just take the first come first serve because then the guy with the heart attack might be waiting for you to pull the toenail out of that guy who has an ingrown toenail and he'll die while you're working on somebody else this would be a routine kind of question we would receive while working as a resident in the emergency room would be okay three patients come in you have An 18 month old that has a hard time breathing. You have a 48 year old man with having chest pain. And then you have a 65 year old woman with some confusion. Who are you going to see first? Uh, Because you need to select between those. And so you have to go through the process. Okay, well, you know, breathing is kind of more important than anything else because you can only go for like a minute or two without breathing, whereas if you're having chest pain, you might be able to wait those two minutes. It's going to take me to take care of the kid. So, and then the confused older woman, there's a lot of things that could be behind that. Hopefully it's not the worst case scenario, but so we're going to go for the kid first. You know, we're going to treat the kid because they're, because breathing is more important than circulation, is more important than, you know, mental status. So that's a kind of a triage from a medical perspective is identifying those vital sign abnormalities or those symptoms that are the most acute that need attention right now so that you don't lose a patient while taking care of somebody else. In
0: July of 2005, Dr. Albert Moeller was the first to apply the terminology of triage to Christian doctrine. In a well-known essay at his website, Moeller said that God's truth is to be defended at every point and in every detail, but responsible Christians must determine which issues deserve first-rank attention in a time of theological crisis. It's a fair point by Dr. Moeller. but the question is, how do you know which issues are first rank? After all, everything that God says matters. All of God's truth is important. How could you possibly categorize them? Say that some are like a heart attack and others are more like a sprained ankle. Important, but not life-threatening. For help, I called Dr. Andy Nicelli, Professor of Systematic Theology, and New Testament for Bethlehem Baptist College and Seminary
1: in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Everything the Bible teaches is true. Some are more important than others. And when I say that to people, I usually see a look on their face like, what, some things are more important? Who are you to say that something that God says here is more important than what God says there? That's a good question. So where I typically go is uh, to two passages. One is in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, I delivered to you as of first, protos, importance. Which means you got some things that are first importance, and there's at least one other category, and that's things that are not first importance. So not everything's equal in importance. Some doctrines are more important. And that goes right along with another passage in Matthew 23, when Jesus refers to the weightier matters of the law. So that's a little different, different metaphor of weight. Some doctrines have more weight than others.
0: Dr. Naselli has helped us see that theological triage is in the Bible. Scripture makes it clear that some doctrines have more weight or significance than others. Now, we need to figure out which ones are equivalent to the gunshot wound or a heart attack in the ER if we get them wrong, and which doctrinal errors are more like a sprained wrist. The first part of that answer comes from Dr. Ryan Putnam. He's Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs at Williams Baptist University in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. He also wrote a book on this topic. It's titled, when doctrine divides the people of God, an evangelical approach to theological diversity.
4: Again, because we're Protestant evangelicals, we don't have a magisterium that just you know sends us out a list. These are the things that we, that, that go into each category. So there's a there's a degree of subjectivity to this um, that that comes from us thinking about what we place the most value on, what we see in scripture uh, stands out as clearest and most important. And so I I just preface this by saying that uh, I think Protestant evangelicals across the board, at least in particular camps, will have some pretty similar um, taxonomies, but it it might be a little different here or there. The first thing I think about is What does scripture explicitly state? And what scripture explicitly states, to me, goes into that category of of a first-tier doctrine. And things that are directly implied by what scripture explicitly states also goes into that first-tier category. Key point here from Dr. Putnam.
0: Even if an issue isn't directly related to salvation, it can still be first-tier if it's explicit in the Bible and someone still insists on rejecting it. If Scripture clearly and explicitly takes a position, we must take that same position. If we don't, we are disregarding the Bible, which is always a first-category issue. Thankfully, Scripture is clear. God intends us to understand his revelation.
4: Well, I'm not entirely sure how scripture could be authoritative as the word of God to us if it weren't clear enough for us to understand it. God doesn't tell us everything about the mystery of his will, but where God has revealed himself, where God has spoken to us verbally he is clear. It doesn't mean that every aspect of Scripture is clear or that we're not going to disagree about some smaller, less important issues. But on the things that matter most, Scripture is very plain, very clear, and it is a sufficient authority for guiding our faith and practice.
0: John MacArthur has been making this point for decades. Here he is in a 2006 sermon titled Reasons to trust the clarity of Scripture.
5: Scripture is necessarily plain because God, its author, creator, redeemer, speaks plainly to accomplish his purpose. And what is his purpose in human history? It is to redeem men and women, to gather a bride for His Son. It is to bring a message of salvation so that those who were chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ can hear and believe and be saved and be brought to eternal glory as the bride of the Son of God." God's purpose is crystal clear. God's plan is plain. This presupposes that the Bible is a revelation. It takes that which has been hidden and brings it out of hiding, takes that which has been a mystery unknown and makes it crystal clear. The Scripture is given us by God through the Holy Spirit in order that we might know how God thinks and we might possess. The very mind of Christ, all of this demands that the Bible be a clear word.
0: So, what is that clear word? Well, the Bible is explicit and clear when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ and the salvation of the lost. The Bible doesn't leave any room for debate over who Jesus is and what his life, death, and resurrection accomplished for sinners all of Scripture, Old and New Testaments, articulate the same basic truth about the gospel, the story of God sending his Son to earth to redeem
6: sinners like you and me. John 20, verse 31. John writes these things, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you need to believe in this Christ presented in the Gospels. This is Dr. Michael Reeves,
0: president of Union School of Theology in South Wales. He's also the author of several books, including Delighting in the Trinity and most recently Rejoice and Tremble The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. He was recently in Southern California, guest lecturing in the Doctor of Ministry program here at the Master Seminary when I asked him what doctrines are the most important in the Christian life. His answer focused on the person of
6: Christ. So not just any figure Christ who might be an example, a guru, a wise man, um, a, a lifestyle coach, but in this Christ, the eternal son, the eternal word, who is the glory of his father, who comes to us to give us the right to be children of God, this Jesus to believe in him. Now, to believe in him, he is specifically the Christ, the Spirit anointed one. Uh, Christ means the, the anointed one. He is the one anointed with the Spirit. He is the Son of God. God is his Father. So to press into the nature of the Christ in whom we believe means we come to a triune God. Now, that doesn't mean that the young Christian needs to have a complete understanding of a doctrine of the Trinity. Christian truths are things that we, we're constantly pressing forward in our knowledge of. But you cannot be a believer without that basic thrust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the Bible
0: is crystal clear about who Jesus is and that salvation is through faith in Him. But what about passages of the Bible that aren't directly related to the gospel, but are just as clear? I'll give you an example. 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Rick Warren and lots of other Christians would say it's okay to disagree about that verse because it's not talking about salvation. Here's Warren making that very point on a podcast not long after Saddleback and the SBC parted ways.
2: Everybody in the SBC believes in the inerrancy of scripture. Now we're talking about difference of interpretation. Those particular passages, Titus, Timothy, and and Corinthians have hundreds, literally hundreds of interpretations. We should be able to expel people over sin Racism, sexual abuse, uh, uh, other sexual sins, things like that. But this is over over uh, 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 you mean, wait a minute, we can disagree over the atonement. We can disagree over um, uh, um, election and, and, and we can disagree over dispensationalism. We can disagree over the second coming. We can disagree over the nature of sin, but we can't disagree over what you name your staff.
0: Okay. Rick Warren has committed at least three logical fallacies and has officially gone off the rails. He has taken the concept of theological triage and absolutely abused it for his own ends. He's in full-blown accommodation to the culture, only willing to identify serious sins that the culture says are egregious. Racism, sexual sin, financial impropriety. He's putting every other category of doctrine up for debate. This is not how the theological triage model is to be used. Dr. Niselli shows us a far more excellent way.
1: We may misuse the model to trivialize anything that's not essential to Christianity. So here's how some people would, would reason. They'd say, that's not a level one gospel issue. Therefore, it doesn't matter very much. Therefore, we don't need to think much about it or try to understand it and apply it. Definitely don't separate over it. After all, it can just be so divisive, so let's just unite on what's essential to Christianity and not sweat over the rest. Don't worry about the rest. And I'd say in reply to that, no, whatever God reveals to us is important. It all matters. Every word matters. We dare not minimize anything that God has graciously revealed to us. There are no insignificant doctrines revealed in the Bible. But there is an essential foundation of truth that undergirds the entire system of biblical truth. We may misuse the model to rationalize disobeying God. So to disbelieve God is to disobey God. And a fundamental way that we sin is by thinking that we know better than God does. So we trust ourselves instead of trusting God. And that's an idolatrous arrogance that belittles God and steals glory that belong to him. And I... I can't help but seeing this when people just dismiss the issue of what God says about men and women in the home and the church as if, ah, that's not a first-level issue, stop arguing about it, doesn't matter as much. Can you imagine saying to God on Judgment Day, you know, but Lord, I didn't obey that because it's not a level one issue. A lot of Christians disagree about that. God says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she's to remain quiet, 1 Timothy 2. And this recent movement called egalitarianism or evangelical feminism has done exegetical and theological backflips to change I do not permit to I do permit. And when someone says, well, the role of men and women in the church is not essential to Christianity. It's a level two issue. It's not level one. Let's just agree to disagree about this. Don't make a big deal about it. I think if that's how we're using this theological triage model, we're doing it wrong and we dare not use any model to justify disobeying God.
0: Theological triage is not simply telling us which doctrines are essential for salvation. Theological triage is not attempting to minimize the biblical worldview to satiate our culture, to acquiesce to their demands. Lots of Christians are tempted to do just that when it comes to one of the most contentious issues of the day between Christians and our society, the LGBTQ movement. Here's another prominent Southern Baptist pastor who misuses theological triage to do that very thing.
2: We ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Not one time ever said that it was difficult for the same sex attracted to go to heaven. He did say it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle I have a needle than it was for a religiously proud or materialistically successful person to enter into the kingdom of God.
0: That clip went viral, and here is John MacArthur's response during a sermon at Grace Church.
7: Somebody said that when God spoke about homosexuality in the scripture, he only whispered. I don't think he was whispering in Genesis 19 when he buried the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah under fire and brimstone for homosexuality. And I don't think he was whispering in Numbers 25 when he confronted 24,000 Israelites that had illicit sexual relationships with Moabite women and God killed all 24,000 of them. His attitude has not
0: changed. Dr. Putnam also addressed the LGBTQ issue and its relationship to theological triage during our interview. These debates are a recent part of our cultural conversations, both in the church and outside of it. And some want to avoid this conversation. They argue that gender issues are not first-order issues because they aren't mentioned in some of the church's most famous creeds and confessions, like the Apostles' Creed, Nicaea, or the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yet Dr. Putnam argues that this issue's place in theological triage is clear, and you can't shrug your shoulders and say...
4: Well, good and godly people disagree. But but I, I do want to say that how you view this issue has huge implications for how you receive the gospel. Because, I mean, how, how can a person place their faith in Christ? How can a person repent of sin if they don't acknowledge what Scripture plainly labels as such? I think our theological anthropology is made and has been made much stronger in the last 30 years, responding to issues like abortion and LGBT propaganda. I mean, that's that's really what's kind of given us an opportunity to voice very clearly what scripture says along these lines. When
0: I asked MacArthur about all this, weighing doctrinal and moral issues and how he thinks about theological triage, he tapped into a clarifying analogy one I'd never heard him use before.
7: I call it the drive train. I mean you've got you've got the, the whole vehicle, which would be the composite of all theology and biblical truth, but the drive train is what matters. You have to have the true God who is a triune God. You have to have the God who is the creator and sustainer and judge of the of the world and of all human beings. And all angels, and in control of history, and sovereign—you got to have that God. You can't, you can't have another God. Secondly, you have to have Christ, who is the true Christ, who lived, born of a virgin, sinless life, substitutionary death, physical resurrection, ascension into heaven, um, coronation, and return. And kingdom. That's drivetrain. And then you have to have the gospel right. That the gospel is repenting and believing and confessing Jesus as Lord. So if if all if that package is there, you've got the substance of what
0: are the essentials. The drivetrain analogy is helpful because it keeps us from minimizing certain doctrines or disconnecting them from other theological issues. Look, maybe you're not mechanically inclined like Dr. MacArthur. Maybe you're more like Corey Williams and you don't know the difference between a choo-choo train and a drivetrain. A drivetrain is not actually a solitary part of your car. It's a group of parts that all collaborate with the engine that moves the wheels in various parts of the car to put it into motion. The transmission, the differential, the drive shaft, the CV joints, the wheels, all are part of the drivetrain. It can't be separated or the thing doesn't work. As the drivetrain is, so the gospel is to the Christian faith. Okay, we've defined theological triage. And we've talked about how anything related to Scripture and Christ is of first importance. We've cautioned against downplaying the rest of what the Bible reveals. Now, the question is, what has theological triage, or the drivetrain, looked like over John's five-plus decades of pastoral ministry? How has he put this concept into practice? And what can we, pastor or not, learn from his example? How do you apply theological triage, or MacArthur's drivetrain analogy, in your church, in your relationship with a Christian from another denomination, or in your perspective on the mission of the church, cultural issues, or online debates over people's convictions and practices? The question is, how do you live out theological triage? I stumbled onto a fantastic example of theological triage in the real world during a recent trip the MacArthur Center took to the marvelous Midwest. We were visiting alumni of the Master Seminary and interviewing folks for the podcast, and the trip's first conversation was in Lee's Summit, Missouri, 20 minutes southeast of Kansas City. As we approached Summit Woods Baptist Church, where TMS alumnus Brett Kapranica is the senior pastor, we were initially confused. There were three different churches, seemingly in one gigantic parking lot. Once we figured out which one was Summit Woods, we met Brett and began our interview, and we asked him about the churches next door and how he navigates those relationships.
8: We sit on property that's right off of a, of a highway on the east side of town, and it's zoned for churches. One of the streets near us is called Church Street, so it's zoned for churches. And so you'll have us, the Baptists and the Methodists, and then the Mormon building is, is next door to that. Methodists and
0: Mormons, both quite different than Brett's Baptist Church, but Brett responds to them differently. Here he is describing his gracious, but appropriately cautious
8: stance toward his Mormon neighbors. We've been approached in the past about doing some community joint events and sharing an opportunity on things that we would probably morally agree with, but we've declined to be involved with because we didn't want to give affirmation to a group that we think is, is, you know, opposing the gospel that we preach every week. But even though Summit Woods Baptist Church has disagreements with the Methodist Church,
0: they still approach that relationship much differently than the one with their Mormon
8: neighbors. I have gotten to know leadership there. Uh, my kids went to preschool there, and so I got to know some of the, the people there. Um, you know, we there are secondary issues of how we define the church that you know, we're not going to be Methodists, and uh, there's approaches to preaching that, that are just very different. But there's, there's an understanding that we preach Christ and Him crucified, and He's the only means of salvation, and they would affirm that. So that's been good. As
0: Pastor Kopranica arrives for work each day, he just has to look one parking lot over to see a cult that denies the essentials of the gospel, one he doesn't partner with in any way. On the other side of his church, he sees a congregation that goes a different direction than Summit Woods on second and third category issues. But he sends his kids to their preschool, knowing that they'll be taught the essentials of the gospel. Beyond the Mormons and the Methodists, Brett described another category of churches in the Kansas City area, ones where there's broad agreement on doctrine and Christian practice.
8: We have developed in this area a... A fellowship of pastors who are like-minded. I was just with them yesterday. There's probably a dozen of us. We we either meet on Zoom or we meet together face-to-face as often as we can, once a month. Uh, And that was really, that has really been a rich fellowship that has grown. And I don't know that I've ever had anything quite like it until moving here. And I think it's a unique providential move of the Lord to bring these brothers here to this area at this time. But when we went through COVID, we talked every single week together. And and it's we're like-minded enough on, on all, not just the essentials, but even on how we define what a local church is and expository preaching and a biblical theology and understanding of conversion. We're like-minded on those things that we, there's a freedom to talk among ourselves and and say hey here's what here's what we're dealing with probably I wouldn't have that freedom with many other men Brett just walked us through a helpful
0: paradigm do not partner with the mormons because they do not proclaim the gospel appreciate that the methodists preach an accurate gospel but don't follow their form of ecclesiology and other doctrinal matters then Actively seek out like-minded churches and other pastors who can encourage and strengthen your ministry. If you're a pastor, you're going to have to think through your relationships with other pastors in your area, even if you don't share a parking lot with them like Brett does. For decades, John MacArthur has had to make the same real-life decisions. He's had to navigate relationships with Christians he's disagreed with. In these instances, the theological drivetrain has been extremely useful. It's helped him cultivate friendships and partner with allies for the sake of the gospel, even when there are disagreements. Perhaps the most famous example of theological triage in MacArthur's life was his relationship with Jack Hayford, a pastor at a church on the way to Grace Community Church.
8: In 1969, while serving at Bible College, Jack and Anna, now a family of six, agreed to serve as interim pastors at a small, struggling church in Van Nuys, California. They committed to six months. So much for planning. But anyway, uh, but God had other ideas making it clear that Van Nuys was going to be a permanent assignment for the rest of his life and for the term that God had ordained.
0: Literally just down the street. Turn left on Woodman, turn right on Sherman Way. It's less than two miles from Grace Community Church, where John has been the pastor since 1969. You'll find Church on the Way. Part of the four-square Pentecostal denomination founded in 1923 by the famous lady preacher Amy Simple McPherson.
3: But every day and every night, Jesus spoke to my
5: soul, now will you go, preach, preach, preach the word of God.
0: Public service announcement. We have some crazy Amy Simple McPherson stories coming later this season. Jack Hayford led this four-square church from 1969, the same year MacArthur started, to 1999. Under his leadership, the Church in the Way grew from a few dozen to more than 10,000. It became one of the most influential Pentecostal churches in America. Pastor Jack wrote more than 40 books and nearly 600 hymns and choruses, including one that you may know. though Grace Church and the Church on the Way both served the San Fernando Valley, they could not be more different. John MacArthur is an outspoken critic of the charismatic movement. Jack Hayford was one of the world's most well-known Pentecostals. So how did John navigate that relationship? I asked him that question recently.
7: With a Jack Hayford, you had a classic, traditional, old-fashioned Pentecostal. And theologically, I would say he knew the gospel and believed the gospel and loved the Lord and believed in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. So we had that in common, but almost nothing else. I mean he he didn't want anything to do with the solas, the tulip, anything that was reformed. And he had a strange approach to the scripture. It was partly academic, but mostly intuitional. So it was was just as likely to end up with a wrong interpretation as a right one. But because he was very close to us here, just down the road, I got to know him. And I saw the desire of his heart to do the right thing, And I knew his heritage went way back and that it was not likely that that I was going to make him change. So I never approached the relationship that way. I wanted to be to him whatever I could be to strengthen what I could strengthen. So I think the way that friendship worked was I tried to be available to be strength in his life and ministry where I could be. And he was such a faithful friend. Uh, He repeatedly told me how he prayed for me, prayed for Patricia when she broke her neck. It was such a burden for him. So again, I think you take out of a friendship like that what the friendship offers without alienating the other person.
0: MacArthur is remarkably consistent on this. That conversation was a few months ago. Here's a QA and a from the 1980s, when John has a similarly gracious response when an audience member asked John about the Church on the Way during a Sunday night Q&A at Grace Church. Yes. Hi, John.
5: Uh, I have kind of
7: an off-the-wall two-part question. Uh, I work with some guys from Church on the Way and we're pretty good friends. And I was curious, uh, they have some definite views as to uh, that Grace Church is a church without the spirit. Uh, is how they worded to me and I was wondering what our relationship is with Church on the Way and
5: your personal relationship with Jack Hayford that's a fair question Um, from what I uh, from from the standpoint of the church yes they believe we would be without the Spirit in the sense that we don't accept the Pentecostal baptism of the Holy Ghost they call it the baptism of the Holy Ghost and um, so they, they think that we have missed the spirit, which of course is ludicrous. You know, it's just, I mean, how can you say that? You know, uh, Jack Hayford would never say that. Um, Jack and I periodically have breakfast or lunch or we get together and talk. And, uh, um, he really is a man devoted to Jesus Christ. There's no question about that in my mind. He is, he's devoted to Jesus Christ. um, and he, uh, he desires to do what's, what's right and what honors God. I think he is a man without guile and deceit. I don't think he's a deceiver at all. I think he's an honorable, honest man with integrity. He comes out of the heritage of Pentecostalism, and I consequently think that's where, you know, that's where he is. I mean, that's the way he was raised, and that's where he's comfortable, and that's what he's learned, and, and that's his, his vernacular. He would never say that we are void of the Holy Spirit, even though his theology might dictate that to him. Uh, he is the president also of Life Bible College, which is, stands for Lighthouse of International Foursquare Evangelism. It's a school started by Amy Simple McPherson, who started the Foursquare denomination of which Church on the Way is a church, is one of their churches. And she's a in herself, you know. But uh, he is the president of that school down there, and he invited me to come down and speak to the student body in chapel on uh, the matters regarding spiritual growth and so forth. And then when they dedicated their new church about a year ago, I was the keynote speaker to, to speak on the importance of the Word of God to their whole church family. And that was a... I, I don't think he would do that if he believed for a moment that I was void of the Holy Spirit.
0: Some have been critical of MacArthur for how he talked about Hayford. They've accused him of compromising the gospel. He's being too gracious. He's selling out by speaking at a Pentecostal conference. Well, before you think MacArthur in this podcast is going too easy on the charismatics, you need to know that later in the season we have an entire episode devoted to our charismatic friends and the chaos they have unleashed. Stay tuned for that one. What we need to see now is how John MacArthur models a gracious, godly way to interact with another Christian when there are significant theological differences. You encourage them where you can. You never compromise on your convictions. And if possible, you try to help them go deeper in their understanding of God's truth.
7: I remember when I was invited to speak at a pastor's conference at Jack Hayford's charismatic church. People said to me, why, why would you go to that church? That's charismatic. They believe in all the gifts and healings and all the Holy Spirit aspects. And I said, because they need to hear the truth about the Word of God. Jack asked me to come and speak on biblical authority. I couldn't get there fast enough. I I wasn't worried about what people would think of me because I'm out there. I've written books and I've preached. So I think you have to ask yourself... Uh, what kind of opportunity are you really looking at and take that opportunity. So I was, I, I got into trouble with some people who in the, in the fundamentalist world who felt that I showed up in some meeting or with some other group that were inconsistent with what, what I believe. And my response to that was, um, the question is not, am I speaking to people who don't believe what I believe? but am I being faithful to the word of God? Um, I have to be able to cross that line. I have to be able to confront error. I have to be able to help advance people. Then you move another step. What about someone who in any sense denies the faith, uh, denies the Trinity, uh, denies salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone or whatever, That's that's a bridge too far. So that's how I look at it. First of all, the people who agree, basically you can go there and you can can minister with them because they're part of the kingdom. Um, People who have some disagreements with you but would benefit by your teaching, you definitely go there. But... To be lined up with um, the adversaries of the gospel in any kind of alliance is unacceptable. Now, having said that, if I was asked to go and preach the gospel at a Jewish synagogue, would I go? And the answer is, if I was invited to go to a Jewish synagogue and preach the gospel, I would have to go because that's what the apostles did. So there is a point at which it's so obvious that you're taking a message that they don't believe that it becomes evangelism, it becomes strategic.
0: As helpful as John's response to Jack Hayford is, it's not MacArthur's most famous example of theological triage. We're going to tell that story in a moment. Hello, dear listener. It's our first commercial, and I'm not even sure how to start this, and I want you to know I'm not going to try to sell you hair products or a pair of sneakers. Here's the thing. If you're a pastor, you know that one of the privileges and burdens of the ministry is the tyranny of Sundays. You put everything you have into a sermon, and then you have to do it all over again seven days later. It's the ball and chain of preaching. To endure in this weekly calling you need to continually sharpen and refine your preaching. And what I want to recommend to you is the Doctor of Ministry in Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. Led by our Dean, Dr. Steve Lawson, and an impressive group of visiting faculty members, including Michael Reeves, Tom Schreiner, Joel Beakey, Andy Naselli, and many others, This modular program will work with your schedule and ministry commitments to ensure you get a world-class practical education that's sure to improve your preaching and strengthen your church. To be able to sit under Dr. Lawson and Dr. MacArthur in the Doctor of Ministry program was one of the privileges of my life. To learn more about the Doctor of Ministry, go to TMS.edu and request some information. See, that wasn't so painful, was it? Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Nothing in John MacArthur's 54 years of ministry has intimidated him more or forced him to study harder than a 1998 debate with his good friend, R.C. Sproul.
5: He even had the temerity
7: to ask me to debate him on baptism. This was terrifying to me. I never studied for anything that hard in my entire life. If anything came out of that, it proved that if I get desperate enough, I can
0: work hard. John made those comments during his eulogy at R.C. Sproul's memorial service. His good friend and debate partner had gone home to be with the Lord on December 14th, 2017. Almost 20 years later, he still sees in that
9: debate one of the high points of their relationship. My working assumption when this debate arises among believers and of those who are committed to the doctrine of sola scriptura from the Reformation, my working assumption is that both sides want to do what is pleasing to God and to be faithful to the Word of God.
0: That is, of course, the unforgettable voice of Sproul. Beginning his defense of infant baptism at the 1998 Ligonier Conference, Sproul was a lion of the reform movement and the founder of Ligonier Ministries.
9: And unfortunately, those of us who disagree on this point, though we both desire to be pleasing to God, and faithful to the word of God. Obviously, this is one of those places where we both simply cannot be right. And in fact, it's one of those also where we both cannot be wrong. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And we all know who that is, so we can uh, take a break. (laughs) So who won the debate? RC
0: or JMac? Infant baptism or the biblical position? I'd encourage you to listen for yourself. The recording is available on the Ligonier website. There's much to learn about the topic at hand, but even more, there's so much wisdom, grace, and friendship on display. Together, these two men model what it looks like to be friends and disagree theologically.
9: Just last week... Somebody was talking with me, and they had a copy of the brochure for this conference, and they said, I see that you and John MacArthur are going to be talking about baptism and whether it is to be administered to infants, and I said, yes. They said, well, I hope you go out there and change John's mind on this subject. (laughs) And I said, let me tell you something about the John MacArthur that I know that if you can prove your position to John MacArthur from the pages of sacred scripture, he'll change it in a heartbeat. Because I've never met a man in my life who is more sold out to building his theology on the basis of scripture alone than my brother John. And so that really is my burden, is to try to persuade him on the basis of Scripture. He won't let me appeal to history or tradition or church authority. That was RC to a T,
7: so open, right. so gracious, so loving. That never, ever diminished our relationship, not one bit, and... uh we, we had an unusual bond of love uh, and friendship, and uh, even though it was so far apart, right down to the, to the very end of his life.
0: Recently, I asked John MacArthur why he and R.C. were such good friends, even though they came from different theological backgrounds and disagreed on several points. His answer can help all of us navigate relationships where there are disagreements on second and third category issues.
7: Well, certainly I had almost everything in common with R.C. Theologically, in fact, you know, I, I I told him he needed to pastor a church and be an expositor, and that was the richest time in his ministry. So we we had very few things we didn't agree on. There were some theological differences and. Uh, There were some personal challenges, but that relationship continued to get stronger and stronger. Um, And I think as the battles got hotter and hotter, that, that just expanded that commitment. And to the point where ECT came out, the Evangelicals and Catholics together, he asked me to come and be on his team, along with Jim Kennedy against the adversaries who were waltzing with the Roman Catholic Church.
0: Theological triage has made John MacArthur's ministry more effective. His partnership with R.C. Sproul is proof of that. Together, the two of them have stood to defend the gospel. Their partnership has strengthened the church and helped countless people. That partnership wouldn't have been possible if John didn't understand theological triage. If he decided that baptism, church government, or eschatology was just as central as the gospel, he would have missed out on R.C. Sproul's friendship, and the church would be poorer because of it. Even though John was across the country from R.C. Sproul, their common convictions brought them far closer than John and Jack Hayford, even though Hayford was only a few blocks away. That's because John knew that Even though he will one day be with Jack in heaven, he wasn't going to be as effective alongside him here on earth. The differences between them were too great. In John MacArthur's theological triage, or drivetrain as he calls it, we see a crucial element of an enduring ministry. All doctrine matters, but not all doctrine matters in the same way. Pastors will not endure if they don't see the gospel as of first importance, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and learn where to draw the line for the sake of Christ's kingdom, and embrace like-minded brothers, pursuing unity to advance the kingdom of God.
5: There is a drive today in evangelicalism, and what a bland term that has become, but there is a drive in evangelicalism for an ecumenism that ignores sound doctrine, that overlooks error and accepts even what we would deem as heresy. There is a kind of evangelical ecumenism that says we're all one and we need to enjoy one another without regard for any of our doctrinal differences. That is a false and unbiblical and displeasing unity, if indeed it is unity at all, in the sense that it dishonors and displeases the Lord. There is another kind of striving for unity that wants to disregard iniquity and embrace everybody no matter whether they are walking in obedience to the Word of God or not, overlooking their sin and their iniquity. And I really believe with all my heart that one of the great blessings and benefits of a church that has clear doctrine and clear teaching and handles the word of God accurately and precisely is that it gets a legacy of unity. Because the people think the same things. They render the same judgments. They agree. There might be a bit of a struggle here and there as to the wisdom necessary to make the application of the truth, but certainly you want to start with the truth. You do everything possible within your strength to maintain unity, to pursue peace, to show compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bear with people and forgive people and put on love unselfish, sacrificial service. And that spiritual unity will become visible and God will be glorified.
0: Thank you for listening to Season 3 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. For our second episode, we're talking about John MacArthur's most famous and most controversial book. We'll see how the Gospel According to Jesus has shaped his ministry, and how that book has challenged American evangelicals. That's next time on The Enduring, the timeless and fruitful ministry of John MacArthur. The Enduring is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and occasionally Jeremy Volo. Special thanks to Carlin Wendler, Michael Reeves, Andy Naselli. Rain Putman, and Brett Kopranica. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you be so kind as to like and subscribe? That helps others discover our podcast. And for more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, go to tms.edu. ATD, out.